This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Sunday. Happy Sunday, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. And we are back this week with a new, 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 got that new, new episode out this week. But first, want to remind you that three weeks, I can't believe it's already three weeks, three weeks from this upcoming Tuesday, my book, Value Economics, Study of Identity, releases on all digital platforms in the form of hardcover, paperback, audiobook, ebook, all kinds of, every single kind of book imaginable. The link is not yet available. I promise it will be available soon where you can either pre-order or preferably by the first week so I can uh, get my book rankings up. That would be ideal. So thank you everybody who is listening. But again, want to just throw it out there. My book, Value Economic Study of Identity, releases Tuesday, June 28th, three weeks from this coming Tuesday. Again, the support from you guys has been quite unreal, honestly. It's been it's been truly amazing. want to just start out with that and thanking you guys for everything that you guys have done to help blow the book up, support the book so far. It's going to be incredible. I think it's going to be great. And we are, uh, we're, we're rolling and there's going to be some good and cool stuff coming up. So uh, stay tuned for that. But onward towards this week first, we got to do this week before we can do three weeks from now. So this is a post that I, and a lot of people, I think most people honestly have thought about for a very, very long time. And I kind of have wanted to write something about the topic. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I didn't want to do like a, you know, foot cancel culture piece, like all that other kind of stuff. Like I, I want to be more. I don't even know if sophisticated is the right word, but kind of like I wanted to have a more nuanced argument than that because there's so much to say around the topic of cancel culture and call out culture and, you know, getting people, you know, out of, out of whatever, whether it be, you know, this show or that show or this movie or this character or this TV personality, whatever it is. So I wanted to kind of frame it in a way where it wouldn't come out as a, you know, kind of just a, you know, caveman-esque type of, you know, argument where I'm just yelling at people for the whole time because I don't think that's constructive at all, honestly. So, but I'm very, very happy with the way that the post turned out, as it were. I'm very, very happy with kind of how everything constructed itself. And I think, you know, I had a lot of examples to look from. So, I mean, there's examples of the shit everywhere. But I wanted to kind of frame it in this way. And I think it actually turned out to be pretty good, I think. And I hope you guys think so as well. So, without further ado, let's get along. Trends are incredibly hard things to see. They're almost impossible to decipher as they're currently happening. They usually take decades before we can properly understand and decode them to understand what they actually mean, why they were embarked upon, and whether they were good or bad. But sometimes, the universe delivers one on a silver platter. Sometimes, the mass slips fully. We can see through what we thought was there, but can never prove. Depending on what it is, 
it can either fill us with despair or embolden us with hope. However, once you see it, you cannot simply put the mask back on. You have to face it. You have to deal with your new reality, the true reality. If you don't, it will slowly devour your soul. You will be consumed with your own lies. You will lose all sense of self-respect and self-value. There is no turning back, no matter which way you turn. On May 4th of this year, the New York Times published a hit piece on Tucker Carlson in their vaunted Sunday edition. The piece was entitled, quote, How Tucker Carlson Stoked White Fear to Conquer Cable. The rambling, mostly incoherent drivel was more than 20,000 words long, an absolutely absurd amount for a print publication. For context, my upcoming book was about 90,000 words, not including citations, or 80,000 words, excuse me, not including citations. The political hit job was a three-piece series entitled, quote, American Nationalist. This begs several questions. Why did the supposed, quote, paper of record in America feel the need to publish an article that's a quarter length of most books about one person? What does, quote, white fear mean, exactly? Can you really justify, quote, conquering something that is a husk of its former self? Why do you think that nationalism and patriotism are bad things? The authors of this series did not answer any of those questions. Instead, they broke down five, quote, definitive areas in which Carlson was deliberately spreading dis- and misinformation, end quote. It is upon these rocks that the authors of the New York Times built their church of destruction. Except that none of them are accurate. As broken down in excellent fashion by our friend Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire, the five areas of, quote, dis- and misinformation are as follows, quote, Number one, us versus them. Accusations that there is a ruling class intent on controlling the lives of normal people and censoring anyone who stands in its way. Number two, replacement through immigration. Assertions that there is an intentional effort to replace native-born Americans with immigrants and that immigration takes away the resources and power of native-born Americans. Number three, shifting gender roles. Arguments that feminism and challenges to gender norms have diminished masculinity contributed to falling birth rates and led to the demise of traditional family structures. Number four, discrimination against white people. Instances in which Mr. Carlson speaks of racism against white people and plays down racism against people of color. And number five, destruction of society. Warnings about the destruction of society, civilization, and traditional values, end quote. Now, let's take Tucker Carlson out of the equation. When you remove the messenger and look at these statements with an unbiased eye, you can see that all of them have merit. And let's take them one at a time. There is a ruling class in America. We've covered that numerous times. They hold disproportionate amounts of power over the hundreds of millions of others in America in terms of influence, money, and power. The White House recently attempted to use the Department of Homeland Security to crack down on, quote, dis- and misinformation, a.k.a. any type of speech that the entrenched party, either Democrat or Republican, did not find favorable. This is a true statement. The same paper that is accusing Tucker Carlson of so-called, quote, replacement theory, once entitled a piece entitled I, Killed you, I Kid You Not, quote, we can replace them. Julian Castro, the buffoonish politician whose biggest success is a failure at being a presidential candidate, bragged about immigrants coming into America and disenfranchising American citizens openly. Many Democrat politicians, including the sitting president, openly talk about how conservatives don't do as well with immigrants as liberals do, and that it was a great advantage politically that they were coming into our country in droves. This is a true statement. Masculinity has been in a tailspin for two reasons. Society has discouraged it, and that men have self-cudgeled themselves into accepting their new reality. Men are failing at all of the most important areas of life much more than women are. 
Shanna Swan wrote an entire book about the fertility and population crisis, with a large support of her claim coming from the shifts that came with things like birth control and women entering the workplace. Corporations in the welfare state have actively incentivized parents to spend less time with their children and for fathers to leave the home. This is a true statement. In his recent and excellent book, The War on the West, author Douglas Murray states repeatedly at how Western society and their predominantly white populations have been under relentless assault for things that they did not do. This is not forgiving their ancestors for colonialism and slavery, but this is not blaming people who should not be blamed either. Joy Reid, an open racist, is allowed a nightly show on MSNBC. If anyone dared to say something in the inverse towards black people, they would immediately be, vo be boycotted. Quote, whiteness, another ridiculous and made-up term, is applied to anyone, regardless of skin color, if the people in power don't like what they say. Just ask in the New York Times, it's right in the title of this specific hit piece. This is a true statement. Violent riots and protests ravaged America in the summer of 2020 and on January 6, 2020, 2021. Excuse me. Supreme Court justices have been doxxed and targeted at their homes. Government buildings and medical clinics have been firebombed. We're teaching children about radical gender and race theories. Half the country thinks the last presidential election was stolen. Anyone who pines for the past in nostalgia is automatically deemed an ist or an ism. This is a true statement. So, knowing that these five traits can be debunked, more questions rightly spring to the surface. Why are people doing this? Why did the New York Times feel the need to use their Sunday edition of the paper to go after Tucker Carlson and quote white people as crazed radicals? Why? Perhaps that could be explained in two specific events that happened after the hit piece dropped. Merely weeks later and exactly 10 days apart from one another, two mentally insane lunatics shot up a top supermarket in Buffalo in a San Antonio elementary school. The Buffalo shooting was racially motivated. The killer didn't like black people, so he picked a, st a store in a predominantly black area specifically to target that group. The San Antonio shooting was an act of evil. The shooter, Salvador Ramos, hated the world and wanted to show it by engaging in the most despicable act imaginable, murdering innocent children and their teachers in the worst school shooting since Sandy Hook in 2012. Now, in a functioning society with functioning leadership, we would see a response that would immediately set out to find the root causes of why the perpetrators did this. They would look at their psychological profiles, their families, and their upbringings. And if they did, they would see some pretty common things with both the Buffalo and Uvalde shooters and those of Sandy Hook, Columbine, and almost everyone that comes to mind. Dysfunctional home lives, withdrawal from society, excessive digital media usage, these types of things. Additionally, if we had humble functioning leadership, they would look themselves in the mirror as well. These were two young men that committed these vile acts. Ramos, in particular, had just turned 18. Psychologists across the world are sounding the alarm about this demographic of people. They're referencing things like COVID lockdowns and online schooling as two major factors in much of the mental health decline. But this is not a functioning society, if you weren't aware. The people in charge did not look at either of the root causes nor themselves. Instead, they blamed people like Tucker Carlson whose job is to have an opinionated view from the political right on issues in America. They said that, for reasons they could not name, that Tucker Carlson and people like him were responsible for the 10 dead in Buffalo and the 21 dead in Uvalde, 19 of the latter being elementary school children. Stranger still, the talk of gun control ratcheted up from both Democrats and Republicans, including prominent figures on the right like Mitch McConnell. They wanted more rules, more regulations. To use the best phrase that came out of this tragedy from the great and powerful Jason Whitlock, they are attempting to solve a spiritual problem with a secular solution. Like all complicated problems, school shootings cannot be solved with one solution. 
Talking about guns and what role they should play in society should be a part of the discussion, but they should not and cannot be all of the discussion. Another question. Why the name-calling? Why say that Tucker Carlson and others like him are, quote, responsible for the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo, for, quote, white rage, for, quote, radicalizing white people? When dealing with issues and problems that are this severe and have this type of disastrous consequences, words carry a lot of currency. So much so that in the other time period in American history where the same consequences were leveled, people came up with a name for it. McCarthyism. We'll get to more of the technical components later. For now, just know this. There is a trend in America. We all feel it. We all see it. We all know that it's going on. What's going on in America is a modern-day version of McCarthyism. No one is allowed to defend themselves when accusations are brought against them. There is, new du- there is no due process. Fuck the jury. The only things that matter now are the judge and the executioner. Additionally, no one is criticized for mercilessly attacking others unjustly. Those in particular without power and strength are the most helpless and the most preyed upon. Make no mistake about it. This shit is dangerous. It's currently tearing America into pieces. We're further tribalizing. We're getting into denser and more secular camps. For all the talk of, quote, unity recently, we've seen very little evidence that it's actually happening. McCarthyism isn't a new term. It's just been rebranded. The most common name is cancel culture. McCarthyism, as we'll see, is no different. It destroys lives. It destroys people. It destroys nations. That is its only purpose. That is its only objective. But I don't believe that it's all hopeless, either. I believe there is a framework we can come up with to solve this issue. This will involve deconstructing the concept of our modern-day McCarthyism and stripping it down to the studs to see how we can take it apart. First, we need to understand what McCarthyism is and was and how it is and was dangerous. Second, we need to understand why McCarthyism has made a return and is now being actively encouraged. Lastly, we need to understand how we can discourage McCarthyism and incentivize ourselves and others to do something constructive as an alternative. So buckle your brains, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get our Stalin on. Before there was cancel culture, there was Joseph McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy was born in 1908 and later became most famous as a Republican senator in the state of Wisconsin. Living a largely plain life in Wisconsin, he entered the Marine Corps in 1942 as a gunner in World War II. He rarely saw action, the most notable of his missions, coming when he was allowed to empty near-endless rounds into coconut trees. This incident, in conjunction with his dramatic exaggeration of his combat experience, led him to be mocked by his brothers-in-arms as, quote, Tail Gunner Joe. After the war, McCarthy successfully ran for Senate in 1946. In similar fashion to his war adventures, McCarthy's tenure was relatively uneventful. He didn't have a lot to say or do, so he served the role of your typical government schlub. He didn't do much of anything or make a name for himself. But, in his typical fashion, he had a way to change that. In February of 1950, Joseph McCarthy made national headlines after a speech. In that speech, he claimed that he had obtained a list of, quote, members of the Communist Party and a spy ring that were employed by the State Department. After the fall of the Axis powers, the threat of communism was spreading throughout the world. Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union were spreading their hateful ideology around the world. Many in America, particularly those in government, 
were petrified about the possibility of communist ideals infiltrating American culture. When Joseph McCarthy made these claims, he did so for one reason, to gain more power and prestige. After the initial, quote, bombshell in the speech in 1950, he pressed down on the gas harder. He later asserted that there were communist infiltrators in the Truman administration, the U.S. Army, and the media. With communism and socialism being the two biggest things Americans did not want in America, McCarthy knew that he had an instant gateway to grab power. As people would later find out, there would be no ends he would not meet in order to seize it. McCarthy, sensing he needed to begin to back up his claims, started to diversify further. He began naming specific people in government and labeling them communists. These people, almost all of them being his Democratic opposition, had no defense against the claims of McCarthy. They weren't allowed to defend themselves because communists were so hated that no one gave them a chance to. Additionally, McCarthy turned his maniacal power grab to another group, homosexuals. Homosexuality was outlawed in the United States at the time of McCarthy's rise, and McCarthy leveraged that to accuse members of the Democratic government of being gay to further ostracize them and promote him as a, quote, defender of American values. Communism, socialism, and sexual proclivities all being taboo at the time, they were all perfect weapons of war. McCarthy never had to fire a single shot. All he had to do was say that he did. However, as the old saying goes, the boy can only cry wolf so many times. McCarthy's rampant accusations were starting to get old. It only took two, two specific incidents to drive America against the monstrous accuser. The first incident was the suicide of Lester C. Hunt, a senator from Wyoming. Hunt's son, Buddy, was arrested at his university in 1953 of soliciting prostitution from a male undercover police officer. McCarthy, among other Republican officials, were quick to pounce. They threatened to use Hunt's son's arrest to destroy his political career. Hunt, playing the situation tough, refused to back down and stated he was going to run for Senate again when his term expired. However, after month of ex months of excoriating media coverage caused by McCarthy and those who stood behind him, Hunt took a 22 caliber rifle and shot himself at his desk, unable to bear the public scrutiny any longer. The second incident was the infamous Army-McCarthy hearings, which ran concurrent to the Lester C. Hunt fiasco. In those hearings, which were broadcasted publicly on live television, McCarthy was forced to defend his tactics for the first time in public. After being forced to hear McCarthy tell the truth under oath, the public began to sour on the once-renowned politician. The American people began to realize what, that what Joseph McCarthy was doing wasn't only wrong, but immoral. They began to take a look under the hood at what he was actually doing to people, Lester C. Hunt being the most egregious case. Realizing that his accusations were mostly baseless, his popularity plummeted. Along with other prominent politicians like J. Edgar Hoover, people finally woke up. McCarthy was blacklisted and formally censured by the United States Senate in 1954. He died four years later from hepatitis, which the doctors believe was caused by alcoholism. McCarthyism, now an official term, became such a dangerous issue in the eyes of the American people that the Supreme Court had to become involved. They later made it a human rights issue that cited libel and slander as their reasoning behind their decision. McCarthyism is re rightly remembered as one of the most dangerous acts of domestic upheaval in the history of our country. Joseph McCarthy's tactics of baseless accusations of the worst thing a human could be at the time proved to be tremendously damaging to everyone he sought out to destroy. He leveraged several culture movements at the time period and used them as a bludgeon to gain national currency and clout. Joseph McCarthy, as we covered, was not an impressive person. He didn't have many skills. 
he wasn't particularly attractive, competent, or smart. He didn't have an avenue to gain influence the right way, so he had to make a way up in order to do so. That method was destroying people and forcing other people to hop on the bandwagon of that destruction. It's despicable, immoral, and wrong. Isn't it ironic how history tends to repeat itself? Because now, ironically, the tables have completely turned. McCarthyism is back, but it's been reverse-engineered. The switch has primarily, but not always, to be clear, taken place from the left side of the political aisle in the form of cancel culture. This theme, which has dominated every year since 2015 when Donald Trump attempted to run for president, has been ramped up to where it dominates a new headline with a new target almost every single day. It has destroyed the lives of countless numbers of people, from those at the very bottom of American institutions to those at the very top. The accusations do diverge, however. Long gone are the accusations of communism and socialism. Those are, unfortunately, very commonplace now in our country. Just ask the high schoolers that claim themselves as open Maoists, they'll tell you. Most of the accusations in 2022 America are from a different lens. Ists and isms. Most accusations of our modern-day McCarthyism come in the form of hating another identity group for the purpose of them belonging to an identity group. These acts, like being communist and a socialist, are certainly undesirable things. It's not okay to hate someone for being a different ethnicity than you or having a different sexual orientation than you. This is common knowledge, and the vast majority of Americans know this to be true. The reason for this is because the vast majority of Americans believe this to be the case. There are very few people that actually fit this description, much like the people that Joseph McCarthy and his lackeys falsely stated back in the 1950s. The crucial difference between now and then is the mediums in which these accusations can spread. Joseph McCarthy existed before cable television, the internet, and social media. Now, with those weapons at the hands of nearly everyone in America, the network effects that Joseph McCarthy once had seem laughable to the ones that even the most common individual can carry now. For example, the aforementioned Michael Knowles lost a sponsorship with Harry's Razors because of complaints from two Twitter users, one of which having only two followers at the time. The ability to create major noise from a minor platform has never before been more widespread. So why, other than the fact that accusing someone of something with no proof of them doing it and without due process, obviously, is McCarthyism and cancel culture not only wrong, but dangerous? The reason is the same as what we referenced earlier with Joseph McCarthy. Both McCarthyism and cancel culture take the central issues of a time period and weaponize them to destroy people. The central issues of 1950s America was the prevention of the spread of ideologies such as communism. The central issue of 2022 America is the relationships we have with one another, particularly those of different races and sexual orientations. There were very few people in position of influence that were actively involved with the spreading of communism in the 1950s, and there are very few people in positions of influence that are actively involved with spreading hatred of people of different ethnicities and sexualities now. The worst thing you can be is the worst thing that a society views you as. If you were deemed a communist in the 1950s, your life was ruined. You were immediately excommunicated by society. You were blacklisted and shunned. If you are deemed a racist, sexist, homophobe, transphobe in 2022 America, the same thing happens to you. Your life immediately ends. The mob comes after you relentlessly and destroys your life. Our expert class warns your fellow Americans about the dangers of associating with you. A similar thing could happen to you if you dare help or associate with them, they say. We must purge the system. Our hands must be wiped completely clean. Anything less than that, and you're a part of the problem. 
This type of thing is what undermines the fabric of a culture. It leads to its unraveling. As mentioned multiple times before, this type of behavior has only one objective, to destroy the opposition. No matter how much Joseph McCarthy or any of the woke or anti-woke mobsters try to spin it in today's culture, that is the objective. I do not like you, nor do I like what you say, so I'm going to call you the worst thing I can call you to get you to shut up. If you don't shut up, the people that dogpile on you will make you shut up. Our unraveling as a culture is a direct derivative of the actions of the people that participate in our modern-day McCarthyism. It leads to a rapid descent into anger and madness from those who participate in it. It's almost like a drug, and can almost be considered one due to the fact that the vast majority of these instances happen on social media platforms. Once you get a taste of that power, once you feel that feeling rise in your chest that you were able to stand in your own moral righteousness, it's incredibly tough to let that feeling pass. The frantic leap by America's citizenry to participate in this from both the left and the right side of the political aisle has been a very curious thing to see happen. The human mind is a very malleable thing. Our value structures can be easily warped if we allow them to be. Ideas are like parasites, to reference Gad Sad. Once they infect our brains, it's incredibly hard to purge them. The fact that so many Americans participate in this activity from so many different spectrums is a living testament to this. We can't get a break from it anymore. It's everywhere. You'd have to live under a rock to not see it happening. A country needs a reason to stay together. It doesn't happen on its own. There must be a reason behind doing something, or people will cease to do that something. America is a unique case on the world stage. We're not united by a single race, gender, type of people, or anything. We're supposedly united by a common creed, one that was applicable to everyone who wanted to participate in this experiment we call our homeland. But recently... That reason has been torn apart by modern-day McCarthyism, just as it did with OG McCarthyism back in the day. This is a very curious thing. We already tried that experiment once. It clearly was a miserable failure. It didn't work. Lots of people's lives got destroyed unnecessarily because of it, and we were good to step in and stop it then. So the question must be asked, why have we allowed it to return? Why is McCarthyism making a comeback? Why has no one done anything? And, most of all, Why are some people in positions of influence and power begun to actively encourage it? If I know one thing about professional baseball... I know that it absolutely fucking sucks. America's pastime, once the staple of Americana greatness that we all knew and loved, is in the toilet. It's slow, old, and outdated. It hasn't been innovated for decades. Any attempts to are immediately shut down. Their attendance problem is unbelievably severe. Nonetheless, even with all these factors at play, the wages of the top players continue to skyrocket where nearly everyone else starves. It's a sport in rapid decline, with no shortage of stopping. This type of thing is natural in all areas of life, because it is the circle of life. Things grow and become prosperous and useful. Eventually, those things die out and are replaced with new ones that are better suited for the time period and the markets they serve. Professional sports are no different. Remember gladiator fighting? No, because no one does. They all killed each other. That's the point of the damn thing. Baseball, like gladiator fighting and croquet, should be displaced by something better, or at least something the market wants. Capitalism and markets ensure these things happen. The will of the people gets to decide whether something stays or goes. 
whether something figuratively lives or dies. But unfortunately, not all things are that way. Like a lot of shit that goes wrong in the United States economic engine, there are a lot of bad actors keeping baseball from dying. There's a lot of old money, a lot of corporate interests, and a lot of general bad actors that are keeping it relevant. However, as Joseph McCarthy and our modern-day McCarthyists realize, there is another mechanism that can be leveraged to prevent the sacred cow of the moment from meeting a fateful end. They can build a new mechanism, one that is not so easily shaken by the whims of the people who would actually demand such a thing, one that is not driven by markets, or people, or desire, but by something else. Outrage. Outrage sells. Outrage, while not better, is certainly louder. Think of it this way. You're a girl at a bar. You see two guys at this bar. One who constantly talks about himself, puffs his chest out, and hides the fact that he has a startlingly small penis. The other is quieter, reserved, more modest, but isn't as showy. The second guy might be a better guy than the first. He might be more loving, reciprocal, and a better companion. But you would never know it, because the first guy is too busy bloviating about his startlingly small penis. Peacocking, while not all the way accurate all the time, certainly has a use. Professional baseball knows peacocking all too well, with a very notable instance happening very recently. In 2019, Tim Anderson, an excellent baseball player who was named an All-Star in 2021 for the first time, compared himself to Jackie Robinson in an interview. Jackie Robinson, for all five of you who live under the American sports rock, is one of, if not the greatest, icon in the history of its history. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play a professional American sport, of which being baseball when he was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers, who later moved to Los Angeles. Jackie Robinson was, to put it mildly, a fantastic baseball player. There was no reason he shouldn't have been made in starting on a professional roster. The only reason he didn't sooner because, was because blacks weren't allowed to play in the MLB. But because Jackie Robinson was a badass, he did it anyway. He faced a tremendous amount of hatred and racism for his decision. People called him names and threw things at him. A lot of them did not want him on their team, even though his value through the on-the-field merit was certainly warranted. Jackie Robinson took all of it in and rose above all of it. He's revered by almost everyone who came after him. His number, 42, was retired by every MLB team because they rightly see that no one should deserve to bear that number again. He inspired the next generation of black civil rights sports figures, such as Jim Brown and Bill Russell, to take similar stances. He was a titan not only of American sports, but American progress. So, that being said, any comparison that any person makes to Jackie Robinson in serious terms is absolutely asinine. It's like a president saying that he was comparable to Lincoln or a slacktivist on Twitter thinking they were in the, ne the next Frederick Douglass or a rapper saying that he was better than Biggie Smalls. These are not serious people. These are narcissists at best and deluded nutcases at worst. It would be better if they were lesser than mucking up our society. I don't know if Tim Anderson was serious or not when he made that comment, but if he didn't in an interview, I'm assuming he was more so than not. Whether or not Tim Anderson wanted to have that happen to him, excuse me, happen to him, he dug himself a grave that he had to lie in. But unfortunately, someone else made an even more crucial error. He called him out on it. Josh Donaldson, a formerly excellent baseball player turned journeyman, had the nerve to bring this up to Tim Anderson when the two got into a shit-talking scuffle in a game. According to reports and testimonies, most notably from Tim Anderson, Josh Donaldson called Anderson, quote, Jackie, in reference to the comment made by Anderson himself all those years ago. Now, as a massive fan of shit-talking, 
This shit talkery by Josh Donaldson is rather weak. I give it around a 3 out of 10. It's not very good. He could have said something a lot more funny. But Josh Donaldson had a clear motive in doing this. You can get in someone's, inside someone's head while doing this. You can call a shitty boxer Ali or a garbage basketball player Jordan to mock their inadequacy and throw them off their game. He had the same intention when throwing this comment at Tim Anderson. However, Tim Anderson knew the playbook. He knew what he had to do. He knew what currency actually matters more. Victimhood Tim Anderson immediately recognized the opportunity at hand, recognizing the opportunity at hand, excuse me, weaponized his own mistake and slandered Josh Donaldson as a racist. Confused, I was. The man who had once compared himself to Jackie Robinson was now calling someone else out for, him, for comparing him to Jackie Robinson. This is how backwards this is. But given the racial tensions in America today, Anderson knew what type of response this could potentially get, and it was delivered in spades. Josh Donaldson was fined by the MLB and suspended one game for his, quote, disappointing comments that he made towards Tim Anderson. He was relentlessly mobbed by the activist network ESPN and all of its cronies. He was taken to task by the social media mafia by anonymous people who probably didn't know the first thing about the backstory, the incident, nor Jackie Robinson. Like so many of the incidents of McCarthyism that proceeded before it, Josh Donaldson was given a judge and an executioner, but was conveniently spared a jury. Due process be damned. This is more important. This is how we solve problems. This is how stuff really gets done. The obvious question must be raised. Why do Tim Anderson and others like him do this? Why is this once panned and scorned trend making a return now in modern America? The answer, when you dig down into it, is quite simple. Human beings, and really all living things, respond to incentives. Plants grow up towards the sun to gain exposure for photosynthesis and dig their roots far into the ground to soak in water. Animals house themselves near food sources and natural resources to gain them access to opportunity for survival. Human beings engage in things like reciprocity and sacrifice because it will gain them favor with other humans down the line. Humans, who have the most evolved brains of any species ever studied, have an enhanced sense of what incentives are and are able to sort the hypothetical wheat from the chaff. We have recognized what the most important incentive is in our current culture. We all know. The biggest incentive today is being a victim. Being victimized by someone else, especially on the issue as prevalent as divisive as racial slandering, is very appealing to anyone who can get away with it, no matter who they are, what they look like, what they do, or whatever else. It's all over the place. People complain all the time about everything. They never have to attain anything. It's never about what they've done. It's always about how they can't do something. It's always about what they can't do because someone else had taken something from them. They never have to act in a just fashion because there's always some injustice done to them that's more important. This is the reason that victim culture is so dangerous. That reason is because the person espousing this view of themselves and the world is not elevated by merit. Instead, they're elevated by its opposite. That is a fundamental problem, not just in the form of human experiments, experience, excuse me, but the nature of reality itself. The world and all that is in it does not work that way. As we mentioned earlier with professional baseball, keeping something al alive, figuratively in this case, long after its purpose has been served does a great injustice not only to the world, but that thing. Let's take this scenario and flip it on its head. Imagine applying the same logic that you were celebrated by your inadequacy and not your adequacy to another context. Would you prefer your apartment be this way? 
Would you prefer your husband to be this way? Would you prefer that your work environment or the economy or the books you read or the communities you immerse yourself in to be defined by lackadaisical mediocrity rather than by impressive exceptionalism? The answer to all those questions and to the victimization of modern America is of course not. Human beings naturally pursue privilege. We pursue excellence. We go after things that have actual value and are actually worthwhile. To go after anything else is to cheat yourself and the rest of the market that is going after the same thing. It doesn't, quote, diversify anything. It distorts it. It warps it. It twists it. There is no value in going after any of these things because those things contain no value whatsoever. It's ludicrous to even imagine that that would be a worthwhile endeavor in any sense. McCarthyism then, and McCarthyism now, thrive on the principle of destruction in order to gain power and currency in society. Whatever that power and currency is, whether it be political posturing then or victim culture now, is worth its weight in gold. This is because people that adopt these things can use them as a trampoline to obtain more things. Think about modern America and how many stories like the one Tim Anderson have been told have been shared. It's at least in the hundreds. Think about people like Jussie Smollett, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, and Amber Heard. Did their profiles rise or fall during their time in the public eye when they were embarking on this type of behavior? What happened to them during this period of their lives? Well, they got more famous, of course. They gained more clout, power, and prestige. What was on the other side of them was what they had to tarnish to get there, whether that was Trump-style racists, racist and sexist in the media, or victim-blaming masochists, all of whom proved over time to be completely and utterly fabricated. Think of it like a seesaw. Destruction is on one end. Power and currency in society is on the other. Victimhood is the lever, the one that pushes one side down and the other side up. The rules of the game are simple. You must destroy your, quote, oppressor in order to gain more power. The more viciously you destroy whatever that thing is, the better it will probably work out for you. The higher the seesaw will swing. Remember, there is no morality in moral victories. There is only domination. The saddest part of all of this is that the people participating usually aren't the ones benefiting the most. Think about it. Who is encouraging the behavior? Who is not necessarily the loudest, but the most influential? Our expert in ruling class, that's who. They are the ones that take the lead, even if they hide in the shadows of the mob. The reason behind this is that these groups of people know that it feeds their power. They like to elevate their victimized idols to get their mob followers to voluntarily hand over their sovereignty to them. It's not about, quote, solidarity or anything of the sort. It's about control. It's about putting them in a dominant position. They place themselves on the strong side of the toughness gap while actually marginalizing the people who give them their support to them. They look at them on the weak side of the toughness gap and laugh. They don't even know what hit them. They don't know why they're even there. All they can do is look on, confused, and wonder how in the world they came so far. And sadly, they'll never probably come close to finding out. What's even more sad is that any motion towards constructive argument or debate is immediately scrubbed. The people who participate in this rancid ideology never have to defend their ideas because they can just afford to get away with mindless platitudes instead. They're like a bad insurance company. They promise they're alleviating harm, but really do nothing to clean up their own shit when they sell you a bad policy. It's a bad deal for every single party involved, and mostly for the people who are they supposedly helping. This might seem hopeless. The McCarthyism victims of the past thought so, and the cancel culture McCarthyism victims today do so as well. But there is always light at the end of the tunnel if you choose to see it. And to see it, we must look at its source. In this case, torches.
No, not those kind of torches, you racist. Joseph McCarthy yells in triumph in his grave. I've long stated and have been correct upon saying that Survivor is the game that best represents life, not football. That is because Survivor is life, quite literally in the sense of the word. Survivor strips down humanity to nothing, throws them into the throngs of the past, and forces them to fight it out as our ancestors did. It's a beautiful game. But it's often a brutal one as well. The most brutal part of the game is when the players have to go to tribal council to vote one another off the island, with some of them potentially having to vote for them at the end of the game to win. It's a brilliant twist and something that has come into factor in nearly every single decision made by the contestants. I gotta give them credit. Survivor has been on fire recently for their casting. They've done a sensational job drafting good players who will be remembered long after the game is over. And this past season, which ended last week, or two weeks ago I should say, was no exception. I can't remember a season in recent memory with all new players where they were all so bizarrely memorable. I can name ten, at at least ten, excuse me, right off the top of my head, all for different reasons than the other. It was what true diversity should strive to be. Different people from all different walks of life going at it to see who would come out on top. But unfortunately, Survivor is also running on a major television network, and therefore it is subject to modern-day McCarthyism by the altar of woke slacktivism. It's happened in both seasons after the pandemic and BLM summer of 2020, and will probably continue to happen from here on out. I'm not necessarily against it, or I'm not against it necessarily, but when it's so blatantly forced, it can come off as just a tad bit inauthentic. I think most of the audience can sense it. I just don't think the producers care or are unafraid enough to do anything to appease them. The fateful episode happened at a pivotal juncture of the game. When there were 10 people left on the island, There was an immunity challenge where the ten people were split up into two groups with two people having a shot to be safe at tribal council. The catch? Two people had to go home in return. Double the safety, double the trouble. The stakes couldn't have been much higher. When the challenge was over and the vote went down, the first unfortunate person who got the axe was Roxroy Bailey. Bailey, who thought he was safe going into tribal council, but had had unfortunately felt the same sting as so many who had played before, and was blindsided by his alliance to further their own benefit. To add insult to injury, he was forced to sit and watch the second tribal council unfold while sitting next to the lone jury member, Chanel Howell, who was voted out of the previous tribal for being, quote, untrustworthy, a claim that to this day I'm still trying to figure out the reasoning behind, and yes, it got that complicated. When the second group rolled in, they looked at the jury before taking their seats. To a lot of people's shock, including mine, contestants Marianne O'Catch, who would later go on to win the game, Andrea Wheeler, were distraught as soon as they sat down. The ever-inquisitorial host, Jeff Probst, immediately began to probe into the reasoning. Bailey and Howell, as well as Okecht and Wheeler, are all black. Bailey and Howell were the first two people to be, to be voted out after the halfway point in the game where the tribes merged. When Probst asked the two women why they were upset, they were quick to point out that there was a, quote, trend of black contestants being voted out earlier than white contestants. And there is a kernel of truth in this point. There have only been a few black winners of Survivor, and not including Okech at that point. But to the contrary, not a lot of black folks played Survivor in the same number as white people or other people. Just look at pictures of the cast. So, it's a fair point and an unfair point at the same time. Probes, wanting to stroke the fire, encouraged the women to keep going about how black people had been discriminated against in the game, and about how there was a quote, quote, unconscious bias about how people played and in the way in which they voted. Unfortunately for the two women, and fortunately for Probes and their ratings, their argument got even more incoherent as they continued on. But then, something even more unexpected happened. Someone interjected. 
Jonathan Young, one of the most massive and dominant team challenge players Survivor had ever seen, brought up a point that he, and probably a lot of other people, thought was valid. He said that, since Okech and Wheeler were saying that black people were being unfairly targeted due to, quote, unconscious bias, that the two of them were indirectly calling everyone who participated in this activity indirectly racist. Young, of course, was correct in this assertion. You cannot have one without the other in this type of a scenario. There are no twofers in Survivor nor in life. But Okech and Wheeler, getting caught, immediately went defensive. Yelling ensued, with a heated back and forth between the three people and others ramping up, with all the rest of us at home watching the chaos unfold. While the three of them remained friends, or at least cool outside of the game, at least I think, this exchange between all of them was a bump in the road, to say the least. In the end, Okech and Wheeler, not wanting to follow in the footsteps of black contestants who had been voted out, including Bailey and Howell, both played their immunity idols that spared them from going home. They were saved. But Jonathan Young, unfortunately, was not. Dalton Ross, Survivor Superfan and Entertainment Weekly columnist, called his actions at the Tribal Council, quote, disappointing. The edit that the producers did on the rest of the show afterwards continued to spiral downward for Young. He was called not only a racist, but a misogynist for how he, quote, treated women as the season went on. He was further slandered as he progressed in the season and afterwards, another victim of our modern-day McCarthyism. Not only was he not allowed to speak his mind about his perspective, which in my opinion was correct, but he was not even allowed to defend himself. The pattern on Survivor, while I truly believe it was not malicious in nature, is the blueprint to how McCarthyism worked then and works now. Someone is accused unjustly of doing the wrong things you can do in a moment in time, or the worst thing you can do in a moment of time. They are not allowed to defend themselves. They are then thrown to the wolves by their counterparts. The victims win, the non-victims lose. All par for the course. So how do we stop it? How do we turn the tide once again? The first thing that I would suggest to do is to do exactly what Jonathan Young did. Defend yourself. One of my favorite things that Jordan Peterson has ever said is that you should never apologize for something that you did not do. This is correct. If you are not directly responsible for something and are not clearly in the wrong and are cle- not clearly not in the wrong, do not apologize. You are not allowed to be labeled something and forced into a bucket that you not, do not want to be in. That's called due process, and it's in the Bill of Rights. You're entitled to it by God and by the law. Remember your rights. Dave Chappelle is probably the best example of this that we have in our current time. People cannot cancel you if you do not let them cancel you. Dave Chappelle came under relentless and ruthless assault for almost four years by telling jokes about people who previously were not, quote, allowed to be joked about. Chappelle, obviously seeing that this was preposterous, did what any good capitalist did. He found a hole in the market and exploited it for his and our benefit. He innovated and made something better. But the mob and the people that support them did not like this. People fought against him. About eight people walked out of their jobs for a day at Netflix. Hashtags trended on Twitter about how bad a person Dave Chappelle was. But he didn't care. He shouldn't have cared. Dave Chappelle did not do anything wrong. So Dave Chappelle did not need to apologize. Therefore, the McCarthyist attacks on him did not work. They failed. Thankfully, more people, such as Piers Morgan and others, are realizing this. As the great and powerful Obi-Wan Kenobi once said, Strike me down, and I shall become more powerful than you can ever imagine. That statement is true, whether it's becoming one with the Force or surviving when the mob decides to create an Inquisition against you. Do not let people tell you that you are not allowed to defend your name and your honor. 
you have a right to and should. You are guaranteed that right in our founding documents and under God. Do not let people tell you that you're something when you're not even close to that something at all. Do not let them take away your sovereignty and place you on the weak side of the toughness gap. However, this is, of course, all contingent on if you are, indeed, truly in the right. The first thing that you should do before all of this is objectively and honestly look at yourself and your actions. Are you actually doing what you claim to be doing? Are you actually in the right? Was what you did really wrong instead? If, when you ask yourself those questions after self-reflection, you don't come out clean, then you should apologize. Humility is a very important thing to keep intact. Getting it right is much more important than simply being right. But if you do turn out that you're not in the but if you do turn out that you're not in the wrong and be very honest with yourself about this as well, you have every ability to refute their accusations and defend yourself properly and mercilessly. Anyone who defends you or tells you that you cannot do these things, that it's somehow bad for you to be participating in this, is a tyrant. They do not want the best for you. They want to disarm you and leave you vulnerable. That should never be allowed to happen. Defend yourself. Stand up for yourself. Respect yourself. The second thing you should do, and maybe the most effective, is to ask a devastatingly simple question. Why? Asking someone why they think the way they do is one of the most powerful methods of understanding in our society. Yet, especially pertaining to topics such as these, very few people do it. And to echo the question we just asked, why is this? Most of the reason is due to fear. Due to the lack of an objective jury in most of these situations, most people feel immense fear when being accused of something that they most likely are not. So, they simply make like a turtle, curl up into a ball, and take it. They take all the arrows, all the bullets, everything, and then apologize profusely afterwards. While it is a noble thing to do when you are actually in the wrong, you must, wait for it, actually be in the wrong. To defend against this situation, you must fight back. The way you fight is with reasoning and logic. You'll find that, especially the more hysterical ones, don't like when you ask these type of questions. The reasoning behind this is that most of them cannot properly provide an actual answer. Remember, like Joseph McCarthy and all these examples we listed, they just wanted attention and power in their specific domain. Most of them are so desperate for it because they cannot get it off their own merit. So, they leveraged their victimhood and the easy swaying of the minds of others to get what they wanted instead. Most of these people aren't that deep nor that serious. They don't care nearly as much as they say, rather yell, that they do. Most of them will not be able to dig down deep enough to provide an answer to your question. They will run out of the room very quickly. There will be very little substance to what they can give you. When in doubt, keep asking why. If they stop responding like a sensible person and instead get angry at you, smile at them. That means you're winning. However, if they do give you an answer, do not match that previous energy. Meet them where they are and engage with them. Be polite about it. Engage in debate. Not whatever people falsely claim is, quote, discourse in this modern time period. If they are in the wrong, but still want to engage in conversation and dialogue like a decent person, refute their points with decency. Keep your character intact. Politely tell them that they're wrong. Show them evidence why that is, and show them how and why they need and should reassess their behavior patterns. Of people that are in the mob, you'll come to understand that very few of are true pa truly passionate about what they're saying. Their awareness is much less than they say it is. You'll find that they know very little about what's actually going on. A lot of them will find out that they don't even believe in what they're saying as soon as you pull a Morpheus and make them choke on a red pill. You can be a very large help to them by doing this. 
You can be the one to show them the light. You can be the one to remove them from the clutches of the mob and the expert and ruling classes that guide them. You can be the one to give them their sovereignty back and place them on the strong side of the toughness gap. That is a very awesome and very serious set of responsibilities, and you should treat them as such. Finally, there is one more method of fighting back, and one not a lot of people know to take seriously. The aforementioned great and powerful Douglas Murray and the less than great and powerful Greta Thunberg has, have affected and perfected this method. When you are told that you are something that you are not, especially something as wild and crazy as being a racist, there is a perfectly rational response that all people should do. It is three words, all three of which hit right to the core of the accusation itself. How dare you? How dare you accuse me of being something awful and horrible when I am neither? How dare you come after my character and integrity when it's perfectly fine the way it is? How dare you degrade an actual evil by accusing me of doing it when I really am not? How dare you degrade yourself by stooping to that level to enable your own victimhood? How dare you? Most attempts at McCarthyism, cancel culture, and whatever terms that come and go that are related to both, are ridiculous and stupid. So, call them out on their ridiculousness and stupidity. Do not allow people, people to defame you without making them back it up. Make them have to earn their right to rip you down from your pedestal you try to aspire to top every single day. Make them work to degrade you and defame you in the eyes of your peers. Make them struggle to try to achieve their lofty and horrendous goals. Ask them to show receipts and engage in debate. Do not allow them to shout at you. Calm them down. If they cannot be calmed down, walk away. You should not engage in dialogue with insane people. That's a pointless venture. It's not worth your time. In all likelihood, if you are truly in the right, you can get them to refute what they are saying. You can get them to back up, reassess the situation, and admit that they are wrong. You can get them to apologize to you and all the others that they attempted to societally castrate with their mindless performances and platitudes. You should always admit that when you're wrong. Always. It makes you better and keeps you humble. But never apologize if you did nothing wrong in the first place. If you do not do something that negatively affects someone to be a better person, that is where you need to draw your own personal line of morality with yourself. Personal accountability is a tool that needs to be honed and sharpened every single day. You don't get to take a day off because the truly excellent, the truly great, no matter what that thing is, never do. If you're going to be great at something, if you're going to truly help our society and the people in it get better, doing your part to defeat the modern-day McCarthyist movement would be about as good of a thing as you can do for yourself for those you care for, and for the world at large. A culture dies when lies overcome truth. That death accelerates when lies run so rampant that they begin to make telling the truth dangerous. McCarthyism, in both the past and the present, is the main catalyst to this acceleration. Telling the truth is brave. Defending yourself and your honor not allowing yourself to be stomped out if you did nothing to deserve it, is the ultimate weapon against the mechanism of modern-day McCarthyism. Say no. Do not cave. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Fight. Win. But if you don't see this in time to hear this message before they take it down, hang on. The dawn is coming. The must-Twitter takeover can't come soon enough. Okay, guys, that is the post for this week. So that is my referendum on the whole situation. If you thought something of it, cool. 
I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. And I, I think this is, I, like I said, I think this is a topic that affects, affects everybody. So I think that it's very, very relevant. It's very, very kind of, you know, taboo to talk about in some ways. But, you know, I think it's a very, very interesting topic. And I think that we need to and are starting to see, thankfully, people start to go against the grain and start to really do something about this, which is, you know, tremendous, I think. And just one last reminder, guys, three weeks from Tuesday, Value Economics, Study of Identity, my book is available on all digital platforms in hardcover, paperback, audiobook, ebook, any other type of book that is available for you to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the digital platforms. I will keep you guys updated. I will keep you guys posted. We're going to have another great conversation series next week with another great guest. I have that person lined up right now. We have been talking, and we think the conversation is going to be really, really good. It's going to be really interesting. It's going to be very important to a lot of you people, I think, which is going to be awesome, so stay, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, before the next week happens, own the day, open your mind. Love you guys. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?